Smartcast. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And I think if you are confident and you never, ever give up, surely that's all you need in life. Because when you look back at your younger self, you know, if you look back at your teenage self, probably most people would say, oh, I wish I had more, more confidence. That's what you would tell people. So if you believe in yourself and you have that self-confidence, then you can do anything, including buying a business. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Today, we're joined by Jonathan Jay, a seasoned expert who's been buying and selling businesses for over 30 years. In this game-changing episode, Jonathan reveals how anyone, yes, anyone, can buy a business without being ultra-rich or investing their own money. Jonathan says, let's make it 10 months of effort to acquire a business that doubles your size. You've just got to follow the process, follow the system, and you get the results. Tune in to discover these three key takeaways. One, how to buy a business without being ultra-rich. Two, why buying a profitable business gets you a better deal. And three, the power of direct-to-owner conversations in business acquisitions. Don't miss this groundbreaking episode. Let's chat with Jonathan now. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How's it going today? It's good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm excited to talk with you. So your whole world is business acquisition. So you think last count, was it 48 businesses you've acquired? Is that right? Oh, well, that, no, that was just during the pandemic. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> before and after, but uh, yeah, the pandemic, I did 48 in a two and a half year period. Wow. I mean, I've got so many questions. I just, if I'm being rude and just jumping right into it, I apologize, but it's like my brain spinning. Let's talk a little bit about business acquisitions. Like who is this for? Is this for someone that already is running a business and they want to augment and add to it? Or is this for someone that's stuck in a 40 hour a week job and they just always want to do their own business? Is it for an investor that has a ton of money? Who applies? Yeah, it's, it's kind of everyone, really. What uh, most people think is that business acquisition is for people who are very wealthy. It's for the private equity firms. And you can't do it as a small business owner or you can't do it as an individual. And that's absolutely not the case at all. I've simplified a very complex subject down into a series of steps. I call it the complete business buying system. And it's everything that you need to know about buying a business so that you can you can come out of corporate life and you can buy a business. You can walk out of your job and buy a business. You can own a business already and grow by acquisition. So instead of another 10 years of effort to get to where you want to be, let's make it 10 months of effort to acquire a business that doubles your size. So it's accessible to everyone. You've just got to follow the process, follow the system, and you get the result. Now, is it very cash intensive to acquire a business or is this something where you borrow money? Yeah, well, this is the best part because people often think that you need to be very wealthy and you need to have lots of money in order to make that acquisition because they think that buying a business is like buying a, a house, a, a property, real estate, and you've got to put down a 20, 25% deposit. But it's not actually like that at all. We can, we can buy a business where it's 100% funded, which means that 
the money for the acquisition comes from other sources. We don't use our own money. And this opens it up to more people because you don't have to have savings. You don't have to be wealthy in order to do this. So is the financing usually coming from a bank or is it typically the owner of the business that's financing? Yeah, it might be from a bank, but probably not from what we call a high street, a main street bank. Okay. And there are different lenders for different classes of assets. So we can take the accounts receivables in some businesses and we can finance against those. We can release maybe 80% of, of that value and we can use that to pay the owner of the business for, for buying their company. And sometimes the owner effectively finances part of the deal. So we retain part of the purchase price and then we pay that over a period of time, which means it's really being paid for out of the business that we're buying. So the business finances its own acquisition. And if there's real estate or or large fixed assets in the business, we can finance those too. So I, I describe it like a jigsaw where we've got all the pieces of the jigsaw and we need to just slot them all together. And when we put them together, the picture becomes clear. And on the picture, it says, we've bought our first business. Have you ever bought a business based on certain financial information? And then once you acquire it, the financial information doesn't quite line up to the results you start to get. Has that ever happened to you? And what do you do if that does? I've done enough of these to to (laughs) discover everything (laughs) that can go wrong. I mean, yeah, I share with people my mistakes as much as I do my successes. People are actually more interested in the things that have gone wrong. Unfortunately. (laughs) They could then learn from my mistakes and not make them themselves. So yeah, I've bought businesses where I haven't done enough due diligence. And then you end up with something that's not what you think it is. And maybe you're in a rush for some reason, or even the, you know, the seller's in a rush and they, they're pushing the deal along and you, you think that there's very little risk. And, and if you buy it right, then even though the business might turn out not to be what you thought it was going to be, your own money isn't in the deal. There's no personal risk in the deal. But you, know, you discover very quickly that sellers don't always tell you the full story. And uh, you know, because they're selling to you and they, they know that if they tell you all the, the bad stuff about their business, that you might not buy it. Interestingly, though, from a buyer's perspective, hearing the bad stuff about a business doesn't necessarily put us off. In actual fact, we appreciate the, the honesty and it allows us to make a, a more sensible investment decision. But it doesn't turn us off because you know, you know after you've been in business for a few years that no business is perfect. Every single business has its faults and its problems. But when you say no personal risk, I mean, on these loans that you get, do you have to personally guarantee them or how does that get structured? Some lenders do want that. Um, it really de- depends upon the the value of the collateral you are giving them. Ah, okay. Um, so if the, if the value of the collateral, the assets that you're using as collateral in the loan, like the real estate, for example, or the large manufacturing equipment are strong enough. Now, every lender is going to be different and it, and it changes. You know, there are periods where, you know, maybe a decade where everyone's very open about you know, lending and very, it lends very easily and then the economy changes. So it really depends your, your go-to financing strategy that always plugs the gap in value is going to be that vendor finance, that seller finance. And sometimes sellers absolutely insist on a personal guarantee, and sometimes they don't. So my advice to everyone, which is, which is always the only advice I can give, is don't sign personal guarantees because you are placing your house at risk if you, if you do so. You know, you, it can have a devastating effect. So don't ever do it. The reality is 
if again, if you've been in business for a while, you know that at some point you're going to go, oh, I'll just sign the PG in order to get the deal over the line. And as long as it doesn't risk everything, because why would you risk everything you built up over the decades for a business? I mean, that that just doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, it's, but it's always down to the individual to to make that judgment call. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you go to buy a business, are you looking at it as potentially being undervalued as it is? Or are you looking at it like, oh, these are the things they're not doing that I can do to build value on it? How do you evaluate which makes the acquisition more attractive? It's a little bit of, of all of these things. Okay. So I'll give you an example of a client, someone who I, I helped. Uh, not I didn't actually help him with this particular deal as it, as it happens. But he has recently bought a 20, I'll say all these figures in dollars, even though they were in pounds, but sure. a $20 million annual revenue uh, steel manufacturing facility. And it makes $1 million a year in profit. And he paid $2.7 million for it. Now, alone, that's a pretty good deal. So effectively, he gets his money back in 2.7 years. That's a really good deal. However, there's a some real estate in the deal that's now worth $3.4 million. So he's actually got himself a deal, which is absolutely incredible. He's got a business that makes a million dollars a year, and he owns a $3.4 million piece of real estate. So you can't really go wrong with a deal like that. So in a way, that deal was massively undervalued. But what I look for more than anything is a motivated seller. Because the price that you pay for a business is going to be affected by the motivation of the seller. So if you've got a seller who folds their arms and says, you know what, I don't care whether I sell this business or not, make me an offer, you're not going to get a great deal. But if you've got a seller who's maybe 65 years old or at retirement age, their partner retired two years ago, they want to join them on the round the world cruise, and they just want to get out of this business, they're highly motivated. Now, what you find often is that sellers are very unrealistic about the price that they want for their business. And the people who are the most unrealistic are the people who have the weakest businesses. And they haven't made much money over the years, so they feel as though selling their business is the chance to get back that money that they didn't make and to pay them for the effort that they have put into the business. So they have these unrealistic ideas. Now, when you've got a seller who's got a good, solid, profitable business, they are way more realistic because they've made their money over the years. They just want to retire. It's, they don't have to make it all on the exit. They've made it over the decades of owning the business. So interestingly, you get a better deal with a successful business than someone trying to sell you a business that's on its knees. Very interesting. However, the new time buyer always seems to look for the businesses that are on their knees, thinking they'll get a better deal. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Wow. Wow. So when you're evaluating business, what are things that stand out to you? What you is there a certain criteria, especially for a newer buyer? Maybe now you're a little more progressed and advanced, but if you're a newer buyer, there are certain variables that you're looking for in a, in a deal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, there's, there's something called EBITDA. Uh, people pronounce it in different ways, depending on whereabouts in the world you are. But it's, it's earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization. And that's the most technical I'm going to get in this conversation. But but that is how business brokers like to present businesses. They say that the EBITDA is this figure. However, it's a theoretical number. What you are is an accounting number. What you're really interested in, you're interested in 
the free cash flow or the net cash. You're interested in how much money is left in the bank account every month because that money is, is yours. That money will pay off your mortgage. That money will pay for your holidays. That's your money. So it's very easy to get distracted by professional sellers of businesses, business brokers, who will throw all these numbers at you. It sounds absolutely brilliant, but there's no cash at the end of the day. And we are interested in cash. So what I would say to someone is be more focused on cash than anything else. Okay. Now, in terms of looking at cash, is that just the simple thing of saying, hey, Mr. Seller, Miss Seller, show me your bank statements and is the bank account going up? Or is there is there an easy way to kind of just get an idea? Is this a cash flow type positive company? Yeah, you're right. You've said it. The fastest way is to look at those bank statements and to get three years of bank statements. Is the company always running in an overdraft? Yeah. Does it get to the end of the month? It's paid all the staff and there's nothing left over for the owner. Is it a business that on paper makes a profit, but the profit never materializes into cash? It never turns into cash because of the way the cash flows and, and, and all of these things. So it's really, really important to drill down into cash and understand the bank statements because that will show you. Now, here's an interesting thing. If a business is, is generating lots of cash and it's building up cash in its bank account, we can actually use that to part fund the acquisition of the business. And there's tax benefits to the seller for doing this. I don't give anyone advice on tax because I'm not qualified to do so. However, if we can use that cash in the bank, to fund the business, it doesn't have to come out of our pocket. And that's a very good thing. Very cool. So in terms of like finding these types of businesses, you obviously have a lot of credibility and authority, which I'm sure it makes for an easier sale when a seller does get connected to you because they know you can probably move the deal through and honor it. Follow through, yeah. For someone that's new that doesn't have that authority and credibility, how do they one, find these deals. You want to find a seller that has a good business and they're not in a distressed situation, it sounds like. So one, finding a good business. And then two, how do they demonstrate to the seller that they're actually credible and they can follow through on this deal? Yeah, sure. Uh, Great points. So the worst place to find a business is a place where businesses are advertised for sale. And that's usually a broker website. Okay. Why? Because there's lots of people looking at those businesses. So you've got competition. And brokers love competition because it pushes the price up and you're competing with these people that you don't know. They may or may not exist, but uh, you're competing with with other buyers. The second reason is, is that brokers have to sell the owner on signing a contract with them. And what's the fastest way to sell an owner on signing a contract with them? Tell them they're going to be multimillionaires by selling their business. So they're not very realistic about the true value because they want to get the listing from the the seller. So what I prefer to do is to I prefer to go to the owners directly. I want to go to an owner who hasn't yet listed it for sale, but has been thinking about selling their business. So they haven't yet got to the point of signing that contract with the broker, but they are serious about selling. So this is a a direct-to-owner conversation. And that is the most powerful one you can have because when you're talking directly to the owner, you can find find out about their motivations for selling. You can find out about the world cruise. They've got booked for three months' time and they've got to sell it in three months. Otherwise, they can't go on that holiday. Now, the broker will never tell you that. Because the broker knows that that reduces their negotiating power. The owner 
is open about it because they want you to buy it before they go on the cruise. So when we go direct to the owner, we have far more honest conversations, far more direct conversations. We can understand their motivations. Now, the other way around is that the owner can get to like you because if they won't, if they don't like you, they won't sell to you. And if they really like you, then they'll be more open to that owner finance, for example. They'll be more open to better terms because they like you, they trust you, they want to do a deal with you. They can see you as the future owner of the business that they built up over the last two decades. So totally get it. We're not going to go to these listing websites that that probably will defeat the purpose. We're not going to work through brokers um, just because they have a different interest. It's probably no different than when a home's being sold and having an agent, it sounds like. So do we direct mail? Is this like a direct mail thing? Is this old-fashioned exactly. cold calls? or? Yeah, we don't we don't cold call. It's very time-consuming. Most people hate doing it. Most people hate receiving the call. So what we do is we send them a letter, a good old-fashioned letter. If you're listening to this and you're under the age of 30, you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's an email. It's an email that you print it off on a piece of paper and you actually put it in a in an envelope and uh, a few days later it's delivered. But the wonderful thing about this is that we can reach a thousand owners next week. And uh, you asked a question earlier that I didn't answer. The question was about credibility. Oh, yeah. And it's very important that you do have credibility. So what I do with people is I help them by discovering what's in their past, in their experience, on their CV that they can lead with. Because every new business buyer is worried that the owner is going to say, who are you? What gives you the right to buy my business? Now, the reality is they don't ask that. (laughs) But everyone wants to be prepared for that question. So instead of being asked that question, you tell them about yourself first. You say, before we talk about the interesting part, which is your business, let me tell you about me and why I wrote to you. And then you have what we call an elevator pitch. It's that 60-second pitch that tells everyone who you are and what you do. And at the end of that 60 seconds, the other person is going, okay, I get that. I understand you. And then you say, tell me about your business. And the rest of the phone call is all about their business. So we've we've turned the tables, if you if you like, um, and we've made you credible, we've made you professional, and we've made you someone who can start with a very strong footing, someone who can start the conversation in a way that gives you control of the conversation. And that control is very important. Very cool. Now as part okay, so we're trying to find these these sellers. So we now found some sellers. What does that process look like? So I imagine at some point we start talking about numbers, they start providing some data. Maybe there's probably some confidentiality agreements. So both parties are going to be confidential. How long does it last? What happens? Is it until the sale actually happens? So we send out our letters. We start getting phone calls within a few days. Okay. Uh, Letters aren't the only thing you can do, but it's, it's probably the most effective and the fastest thing to do. And then we would have a call with the owner and we call this a discovery call lasts no more than 30 minutes. The reason why is because what can happen when you get to the end of the 30 minutes, you kind of start the conversation all over again and it starts to get very tangled up. So we have a quick 30-minute call. During that 30-minute call, we get straight down to business. We talk about what price they're looking for. And we phrase these things very, very carefully. We don't say, how do you value the business? Because as soon as you say that, they think, I don't know, I need to talk to my CPA. And when we get the CPA involved, oh, that just complicates it even more. So we don't talk about value. We don't talk about what they want for the business. We talk about what they need. 
And it's a very subtle difference. What is it you need? What do you need? Because people want big numbers. They usually only need smaller numbers. So what, what is it that you need? Because no one's getting what they want right now. Have you seen the economy? No one's getting what they want. So what is it that you need? Now, if we feel, and we're not trying to do a deal on the phone, but we're just trying to get a sense of whether a deal is possible. And if we feel that a deal is possible, then we get to meet up. And we want to meet in the next seven days. We don't want it to be two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a month out. It goes cold. We want to meet in the next seven days. Now, the fastest way of doing this is that they come to you. So you hire, actually, you don't. You can hire a hotel meeting room. The preference for many people is just to use a hotel reception. So you find a, a decent hotel in town that has a hotel reception where you can order coffee and sit in the corner and chat and not be disturbed. And you meet them there and you have a meeting that lasts no more than 90 minutes. And it's a structured meeting. So it's not just a chat, it's a structured meeting. They've sent you some information prior to the meeting. If they don't do that, and often they don't do that, you, they bring it along to the meeting uh, with them. And that meeting is 90 minutes. And at the end of that 90 minutes, six times out of 10, you will have an LOI, a letter of intent written up at that meeting. Now for businesses under $1 million in sales, that's six out of 10. You'll get that. As soon as we get into like the $5 million range and upwards, those people have advisors. They're maybe a little bit more professional. They've got other people to consult. The numbers are typically bigger. So it leads to another meeting after that. And that's usually where CPAs get involved. But for the under $1 million businesses, we can do a deal six times out of 10 on the spot at that meeting. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. The numbers are typically bigger, so it leads to another meeting after that. And that's usually where CPAs get involved. But for the under $1 million businesses, we can do a deal six times out of 10 on the spot at that meeting. And the six out of 10, is that usually 100% finance type deals, even at that threshold? Uh, yeah, well, it has to be. Uh, and I, t I tell you why it has to be, because the majority of people who come onto my courses, you know, they, they come from employment, they've got money to pay the mortgage, pay the rent, pay the family bills, but they don't have money left over to buy a business. And then I've got business owners who know that the way forward is to expand, but they still don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars lying around to, right. to buy a business. So we have to do it this way. And I've got people, you know, I a great example is uh, is Phil in Scotland. And Phil, this time last year, this time last year was a $50,000 a year truck driver. Mm -hmm. He was driving trucks. He'd been doing this his entire life, $50,000 a year. Three months later, so in, uh, let me get this, the timing of this right, in June of 2022, he bought his first business, a $7 million a year business, revenue a year business, making $1 million a year profit. And he did it completely without any of his own money. But it gets better than that. The business had trucks and haulage and equipment. And he refinanced that once he owned the business and released 
$930,000 into the business's bank account. Three months earlier, earning $50,000 a year. Now he owns a $7 million a year business, and he's got nearly a million dollars sitting in the bank account. It's absolutely changed his and his daughter's life as a result. He doesn't have to worry about money anymore. And I actually filmed an interview with Phil that's on my YouTube channel because sometimes when I tell these stories, they're so amazing. People go, that just can't be, can't be true. Yes, these are real people with real stories. You know, and please forgive me if you don't mind me being a little bit skeptical on one thing. Go for it. A guy that's run a $50,000 or had a job for $50,000, I guess the first thing I think in my head, and, and please come right back at me, what does he know about running a $7 million business? Like that's what kind of comes to my brain. Yeah, sure. So so he'd worked for lots of different companies over the years. Ah, okay. Um, he'd had management positions in the past, but through a series of events and you know, with a, a single parent, a lone parent, he'd been sort of demoted, I suppose, to a driver role. Yeah, life took him down that path. I totally that makes a lot of sense yeah. then. What what a cool, what a cool uh, story though. So how long does it take? From that six out of 10, where we meet with them, I love the structure. Uh, we're sitting at a hotel table or some diner or whatever, some private area. We kind of go through a 90-minute structured meeting. We get to that end of the meeting. We write up an LOI, a letter of intent. From that point forward, how long does it take typically for the business to change hands where now you're the new owner? Well, six to 12 weeks. Okay. So uh, six weeks at the short end, if it's the simplest deal, there's no external finance. The two things that take the longest in a, a deal are not buying the business. Buying the business, the legals for buying the business are very straightforward, really quite easy. The bits that take the longest are the financing. If you're bringing in asset finance, you're, you're financing the um, accounts receivables, that takes a, a longer time because those companies do diligence on the assets. And also the property aspects of the deal always take a long time. In the UK, we have a really archaic method of buying real estate. And it just takes an awful long time. Even if you are assigning a lease, so you're not buying the company, not buying the stock, you're buying the assets instead, and you've got to get an assignment of the lease, that process can take a long time because the landlords, they have lawyers and it just it just becomes a, an extra level of complexity. But six to 12 weeks, if all goes according to plan, a little bit longer if it gets uh, a bit more difficult, but you just got to, you got to stay with it. You've got to stay positive. There are bumps in the road. And without doubt, that's where I give people the most support because that's where they need it. Okay. So now we're at post-acquisition. Now you own a shiny brand new business. Uh, it's in your name. You're ready to run it. What are some pitfalls that happen? And, and I'm going to seed this a little bit. You know, sometimes I was reading on Reddit the other day, someone was talking about they acquired a business and the guy was writing, you know, I don't know what to do. I acquired this business and all the employees are toxic. They hate me. They don't view me as having any authority or credibility. And I don't know what to do. I can't fire them all or else I don't have a business. What are some of the pitfalls like that that you can anticipate after acquisition? <laughs> I, I, know, I know. I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've had people walk out at me and all, and all sorts. Wow. But I know what, what I do right. I know what I do wrong. Okay. And I can sort of share this with your, your followers. So sure, it's very important that you are not the person running the business. Otherwise, you haven't really bought a business. You bought a job. And you do not want to be the person turning up there every day and, uh, and running the business. So you need a management team in place. So the best type of business to buy is one with a management team in place. A management team sounds very fancy. You know, do they you know, fly around in jets? Um, no, this is just you know, the finance guy and the 
office manager and the operations director and just the people who run the business day to day. So it's very important that you only buy businesses which are large enough and stable enough so when the owner leaves, the business doesn't collapse. Very small businesses are very, very fragile indeed. And what you don't want is the business just collapsing the moment the owner leaves. But it's very important to have a plan. We call it a 100-day plan. So what happens the 100 days after you've bought the business? And it's usually the hardest part are the people aspects. Everyone always thinks the worst. A business is sold. Oh, my goodness, he's going to make everyone redundant. He's going to fire everyone. It just doesn't work like that. The last thing you want to do when you buy a business is make people redundant. What you want to be doing is making sure they stay in their place, in their places in the business. So what we want to do is we want to build relationships. We want them to realize that this is not an aggressive move. This is, you know, you're taking over from uh, from Joe, who was at retirement age, and Joe was thinking of closing the business. You've actually rescued everyone's jobs. Uh, you're the knight in shining armor, and you're going to help them grow the business by supporting them. And quite often people open up to that approach and they say, well, you know, Joe was set in his ways and we've got lots of ideas on how to grow the business, but Joe wouldn't listen to us. So now, now's the time to, to tell us those ideas and put them into action and uh, we can grow this business together. And then you can incentivize the staff as well. You can say, look, if you hit that sales target, you get that bonus. If you can introduce that new product line that you've been wanting to introduce for years, well, and that starts selling, Here's a bonus for you as well. So you incentivize everyone to be their best. And you know the deals that I've done where it hasn't worked are the ones where we haven't won over the staff. And if you win over their, their hearts and, and their minds, uh, then you've got a real force for good. If the staff turn against you, it, <laughs> you don't stand a chance. So you've got to get the staff on the side. So you just said for the ones that haven't worked, what does that look like when a deal doesn't work? Like, are we talking like 100% loss or is it you can usually wipe your hands and just take a little ding? What what would that look like? If you buy the business right, then your risk is very, very low. Okay. And I'm talking about doing dozens and dozens of deals very quickly. So like you said in your intro, you know, I did 48 in two and a half years. So you get a few that just aren't, they're just not as good as you expected you do your diligence too quickly. You take a bit of a leap of faith. It doesn't pay off. But with my clients who are buying maybe three, four, five, six businesses, then you've got more time. You're not rushing it. You do it more carefully. So with sometimes with mine, you know, I've had to end up merging two businesses where one doesn't, doesn't really work so well. I tend to focus on these when I'm talking about them. Mm-hmm. The reality is that they are a, a very sure, small sure. percentage of the, of the whole but uh, you know, you you learn your lesson, and so, you know sometimes you you realize that it was completely your fault. Sometimes it isn't, but sometimes it is your fault. So you say, you know, just going to man up and get on with it. Right? How do you feel about when you're buying a business and the numbers aren't always demonstrable on the tax return versus their financial statements? So you know, financial statements they're presenting you says says they make a million dollars. Tax returns are showing you they make 200 and as well, you know, we don't, for whatever reason, not everything's making it to the tax return. Yeah. So the challenge with this, if you do a stock purchase in the UK, where, where I'm based, I'm based in London, sure. you become liable for anything that's happened in the past. So you become responsible as the, as the new owners, you're responsible for mistakes that the previous owners made. I'm not sure if that's the same in the US, 
If you buy the stock, it is. If you own the corp, okay, yeah, so, you're carrying the the corp's liability. Frankly, yeah. So, yeah. so that's a very dangerous thing right, to do. Yeah. So, with that sort of situation, you do an asset purchase, and then then your new corp that owns the assets is going to do everything absolutely by the book. You never want to do anything that isn't anything other than meeting all of your legal obligations. And obviously, you'd never expect me to say anything other, right. other than that. But you should run it properly and pay the taxes according. But then you've got a better business because one day you want to sell it. And when you sell it, you can't say to someone else, you can't say to private equity, or oh, by the way, I do a lot of cash and I don't put it, I don't put it through. You can't say that. So, so you need to have a professionally run business. But the interesting thing is the seller expects you to pay for the fact that they have evaded their taxes. And that's just not going to happen. You can only pay for the business that is that is declared. Okay. That, and you know, I'm, I apologize. I kind of asked that question poorly. So that's really was the heart of my question is more around how do you deal with the valuation from a standpoint yeah. of, you know, they show you these really pretty financial statements, but their tax returns say something different. It sounds like you go, hey, I'm looking at the tax returns. That's what the government sees. That's how I'm valuing the business. Absolutely. Okay. And if, if they've done something to cheat on the tax returns, they've effectively been paid for that already, haven't they? <laughs> they've already received the benefit. Right, they right. can't then receive another benefit right. later on. They can't say, forget all that. And and yeah. Right, right. Okay. Hey, your book, Business Buying Strategies, I loved it, by the way. You you know, it's funny when you read a book and then I, I'm going to interview someone. I'm always curious, like, is it going to feel the same? And it's exact same. Like your book just shoots out knowledge. And as soon as I start talking with you, this whole interview, you've been doing nothing but shooting out knowledge. So it's a, it's a really good book. I, I highly encourage it. Business business Buying Strategies. Now, what I want to do is I want to, a couple last things I want to cover. I want to talk about your course. I'm interested. Share with me what your course is. Who does it appeal? to? Is it for people in the States too? Or is it more just, yeah, yeah talk about it a little yeah, bit. Since the pandemic, so we used to do everything face-to-face in, in conference rooms. And every single one of my clients was British because my client base was all in the UK. And then because of COVID, we had to do things on Zoom. Sure. And I don't think I'd ever even used Zoom before COVID. But what I didn't realize is that it opened up the world to us. And 50% of our client base are outside of the UK. The majority of those are in the US and Australia, strangely enough. So yes, it's applicable to everyone. I've made it applicable to everyone. So I have a, a Zoom course. I call it my fast track course. It's just a few hundred dollars. It's not expensive. And it's a great way across a three-day period, so three sessions across three days, to Get everything you need to know to, number one, understand the basics and essentials of business buying, but also to go out and do your first deal. And then some people continue to a 12-month program with me. It's not obligatory. You don't have to do it. People do the fast track and buy a business. You don't need to do the long course. There's no hard sell. But with the three-day course, it gives you absolutely everything that you need. I call it my, my fast track course. Very cool. And then my last question that I always like to wrap up with is there something in your journey, whether it be a business or a life tip that you've experienced that you could share with us that we could possibly apply? Yeah. So um, I have a seven-year-old daughter and I was talking to her about what personality means. And I asked her to describe her personality. And she said that she was happy and cheeky, which I, I was <laughs> quite happy with, with that description and the personality of her classmates. And I said, what's my personality? And she said, without stopping for a second, she said, you're confident and you never, ever give up. And I think, well, that's 
great advice to give to anyone. And that's what I want my daughter to be like. I want her to be confident and never, ever give up. And I think if you are confident and you never, ever give up, surely that's all you need in life. Because when you look back at your younger self, you know, if you look back at your teenage self, probably most people would say, oh, I wish I had more, more confidence. That's, the, that's what you would tell people. So if you believe in yourself and you have that self-confidence, then you can do anything, including buying a business. Very cool. I love that. That's powerful. Hey, I'll put this in the thinktyler.com show notes. Your website is dealmakers.co.uk. I'll say it one more time. Dealmakers.co.uk. If people wanted to reach out to you, is there any other ways you'd like them to go? Yeah, sure. Um, I have a YouTube channel. It's the Jonathan J YouTube channel. So just search Jonathan J in, in YouTube. And there's about 200 videos, most of which are me interviewing my clients about deals that they've done. So if you want to see what it really looks like, then those interviews are great. Also, there's about 20 videos where you can see behind the scenes of my business acquisitions. The videographer follows me around, is in the car with us, traveling around, and you can see the stresses, the trials and tribulations of those deals. You can see me with my head in my hands, and you can actually see what, it, what it's really like to buy a business. Oh, wow. I'm excited to watch those. I miss those in my research. I love those types of shows. So it uh, sounds like you've got at least one new viewer here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. Well, hey, you were awesome. A uh, bunch of wisdom here. Excited to check out uh, your course and just see what it's about. I encourage the listeners to do the same. And hopefully you can come back on again in the future. Wonderful, Tyler. I would be absolutely delighted to do that. Okay, take care. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.